Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Doxedo Hatfield, so let's please open up our Bibles together to the book of Ephesians. We're in the second week of our series called Ethnic Blends, a journey of diversity through Ephesians. As we said last week, when we came to Pretoria to plant this brand new Doxedo campus in Hatfield, we came with a dream in our hearts. We believe a word from God in our hearts that this church would become, amongst other things, a multi-ethnic community. In Revelation 7, it gives us this picture, this apocalyptic end of the world, new creation picture of a multitude, it says, of nations, ethnos is the Greek, ethnicities, uh, more than we can count, coming together around the cross and the throne of Jesus Christ. So we were saying that we are not a multicultural church. We want to celebrate and express all the different cultures we have in the church But we have one culture that we elevate, kingdom culture. We are not a multiracial church because we believe the Bible teaches there is only one race, the human race. We are a multi-ethnic church, diverse people from our city coming together around the cross of Jesus Christ. So we have to ask the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church? And so Ephesians comes with this countercultural message. Our world is broken apart. It's fractured by classism and racism and individualism. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he brings another model, one of God bringing together this diverse group of people around one common salvation and where they discover their common Humanity. The church in Ephesus was everything but mono-ethnic. They were a diverse, colorful, expressive, passionate Jesus community. So we're saying that that is the heart that we believe God has for His church on earth and in the city. That diverse people from all ethnicities would come together to walk together in fellowship, to work together for the gospel in the city and to worship Jesus together. Once again, Dr. Hatfield, this is our passion. This is our vision. This is our journey. So I started wearing contact lenses at the age of 14. And you believe me, that's a difficult thing to get used to when you are young. I remember in that first year, I was playing rugby. And early in the game, my opposite number comes and just flattens me out of nowhere. I mean, I was like tackled into another religion there for a second. And as I get up, I'm kind of dazed and confused. And I realize I can't see. Like everything is blurry. It looks strange. When they pass me the ball, I see like three of them. Um, You know, the ball feels like a hundred meters away. And then suddenly it's right in my face. So I'm trying to grab at things in the air. I looked so ridiculous. I have no doubt. And after the game, I just messaged my dad and, and I asked him, please just bring me an extra set of contacts. And I go on with life. And then two weeks later, I get out of bed. You know, I'm there in front of the mirror in the morning, just checking out, you know, my, my puffy eyes. And as I'm kind of rubbing my one eye, out comes this pancake thin contact lens from the under, you know, the, the eyelid of my eye. It didn't get tackled out of my eye. It just slipped under my eyelid and it kind of sat there for two weeks, sipping coffee, no doubt, 
Friends, not being able to see is a scary thing. The loss of eyesight is something that every person fears in a way. And we're going to see today, as Paul launches into this prayer, he's about to set some of his deep theological teaching that so blessed me last week. He's about to set that aside for a moment for a moment, and launch into a prayer for the church. And here's the focus of his prayer. It's so that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened. He wants us to see. And Paul's going to say there's a massive difference between simply knowing something up here and genuinely experiencing, knowing it in the depth of your heart and how that makes all the difference as to how we think about a multi-ethnic church in the future of our city and our country. So let's read together Ephesians 1 verse 15. This is why, speaking about last week, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, that I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Now, this is the first of a couple of prayers that Paul is going to pray in this letter. And you would agree with me that prayer is often a way that we bring before God something that we deeply hope for. So, God, I trust, I, I wish, I want my family to come through this season. God, I want your plan for my life to unfold as you will. So, so what is the thing that Paul says, this is what I want for the Ephesian church, for us as a church? What excites him? He says, this is what elates me, that, that makes me thankful. It's faith that transforms life. Paul says it's when faith influences, changes, transforms the way that you live. Paul is saying that if the faith that I have in Jesus Christ makes no difference in my life, it doesn't transform me initially and it's not transforming me season in, season out. You can call that many things. You can call it religiosity. You can call it culture. You can call it feeling guilty. You can call it routine, but you cannot call it faith because faith in Jesus, Paul says, leads to love for all the people of the church. Not just the people that I like or the people that look like me or speak like me or act like me that come from my background, but faith in Jesus leads to a love for all the people of God. If I simply want to stick around and be with the people that are like me, then Paul says, I need to check my faith. So let's read further in his prayer. He says, verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? So what is it that Paul is praying for? Paul is praying for eyes to be opened. That you and I would have the, the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we would know the full implications 
of what happens when Jesus enters into our life as King and Savior. He's saying that through the Holy Spirit, revelation has to come, knowledge has to come. In other words, he wants us to mature, to grow. Yes, you are born into this faith as a spiritual infant, but you should not stay that way. Ask the Holy Spirit to grow you into the fullness of what Jesus has done and what that means for your life, for the church, for the city, and for our country. So three things that he says here. This I want you actually, he says to know. Number one is verse 18. He says, I want you to know what is the hope of his calling. So building on last week, again, he says, God has called us. But it's more than that. It's knowing that God has chosen us. God has saved us. God has redeemed us. It's his calling. And he says, when I truly know that, not just up here, but when that enters into my heart in time, when the Holy Spirit makes that uh, almost a core identity in my life, it changes the way that I live because I know hope that my future is set. It's not just a faith for today. It's a faith for forever. You are made alive today for forever. So if I know that my tomorrow, my eternal tomorrow is set in God through what he has done, it transforms the way that I live today. You know, one theologian calls hope in the Bible. He calls it faith on tippy toes, faith on tippy toes, trying to see what's happening over there in the future. You know, we we live on the, the first floor of our townhouse complex and so out on our little, the terrace there, uh, you know, our kids are two eldest, uh, Ben and, and Abby. She would often, they would run, you know, to this terrace and they would look over it and they would say, you won't believe what the kids are doing down there. And then Mia, the youngest, she would come running. She's just three years old and she can't see over the little safety barrier that they've built there. So she would kind of go onto her tippy toes and she would try and see over it. This is a mark of the Christian faith, that it's got this forward-leaning hope to what God is going to finally do. He has done a finished work in Christ, and it's going to be brought into fulfillment in the future. So I have a living hope in Jesus. So I want to tell us that if we have lost hope for our country Man, this last week again, I read some things in the newspaper, some things happened in our own life, and I just thought, man, I'm losing hope for this place. But the scripture challenges that and says, you know what, if you are going to put your hope in what you see in our country with your natural eyes, you will have no hope. But if we can see that, I will say unashamedly that the hope for our country is the church. It's the hope of Jesus erupting through the church because there, white, black, and brown, and yellow and pink can come together for a common purpose. You can have hope and you can know it in here. But secondly, he says that not just that you would know the hope of his calling, but verse 18b says that you would know the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints in the church. And Paul is not speaking about our inheritance. He speaks about that in other passages, our eternal inheritance. He's speaking about God's inheritance. 
He says, God the Father has an inheritance in his church. You know, we haven't actually been back to Bloom yet since we've moved here. But now recently, Shay and the kids, they were able to go back. And she told me it was so incredible just for the two grandfathers of the two families, for them just to see their grandkids again. You know, that's such a blessing for a a grandmother and a grandfather to have their house filled up with those grandkids. Kids And she said there was a bit of teary-eyed mistiness when they had to leave back to Pretoria again. Why? Because it's a beautiful thing to know. This is part of my inheritance. Friends, that's what Paul is saying. God has rescued, redeemed for himself out of sin and brokenness and death and rebellion. He is redeeming a diverse, multi-ethnic people. And it's his joy. It's his treasure. And it's not a segregated church. It's a deeply divided, not, no, but diverse and united church. That is the inheritance of God. We're going to see later how in Ephesians, Paul continually says that this is the revelation, the mystery that's being revealed to us, that God is most fully expressed, not simply through an individual, And not simply through a bunch of people who are the same coming together. But when diverse people groups, whether Jew or Gentile, young or old, slave or free, when everyone comes together, then the fullness of God is experienced. And thirdly, he says, I want you to know, not just up here, but I want you to know in the depth of your heart. Number three, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, to the mighty working of his strength. The letter to the Ephesians is the book that most uses this word power more than any other book in the New Testament. In fact, just in this verse 19, Paul uses four different Greek words for this word power because he wants to get across this idea to us. That it's not just God's power that worked and and accomplished this final work in Christ, but it's the power of God that is available to us today. We are not supposed to try and nurture this multi-ethnic community in our own strength. In fact, we won't be able to do that. You know, Mark Demas, he, he leads this this international organization that champions multi-ethnic church. And he says this, he says, the way that you get comfortable in a multi-ethnic church is to realize that you go, man, I'm uncomfortable here. We embrace this tension. And that's very different from church where you are trying to make everybody comfortable. Guys, this journey that we are on to bring these diverse people in our city and in our country together, it's going to be an uncomfortable one. It's the discomfort of having to deal with difficult historical and present issues. It's the discomfort of having to have really difficult conversations. It's the discomfort of genuinely becoming family with people that are so different from you. It's the discomfort even of just having to speak our second language, so many of us here in Hatfield, so that we can converse and walk and worship and work together. Paul says it's not just that there is 
power that has accomplished for us, but there is power available to us. We will never ever bring such diverse people together if we do it in our own strength. If you are looking to me or Shay or to a team or to a program or some slogan to on its own accomplish this, we are going to be solely disappointed. We're going to be burned out and frustrated. We have to ask for and trust in the power of God. That's why Paul in his kind of sister letter to the Ephesians in Colossians 1.29, he says this, I labor for this. I labor. I give my best. But how? He says, striving with his strength, God's strength that works powerfully in me. Guys, if we want to see this come to fruition in this deeply divided city, we will have to ask for and live in the power of God available to us. And in the last section of his prayer, verse 20, he speaks about this power and he says this, he exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Paul is saying that this power that we speak of, that's available, that accomplished and today is available, it's all drawn together in one place. What is that? It's the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says that, that Jesus was raised up to new life and he was seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. And this is a picture that Paul sketches of authority. He doesn't imagine an actual like wooden chair somewhere up in the clouds. He's trying to stir us to realize that Jesus has been lifted higher than any other institution, name, program, or person. So he uses all the words that he can think of. He says, far above every ruler, authority, power, dominion, or title, Jesus is higher than all. And this has a massive implication for every single person on earth and for the church. Because it means that now Jesus has become the center point, the fulcrum. He's become the pivot point for all of creation to turn around. He is now the one that if I do not bow my knee today, I will bow my knee one day. Everything now revolves around him. He's become the centerpiece of history when God stepped into history in the person of Jesus to confront and deal with our sin, death, and brokenness with the devil with, with our rebellion, everything changed. You know, my parents are in the paint manufacturing business. And many years ago, I was still a small child. There was an incident where one of the workers, as he was adding, you know, ingredients and, and, and raw material into this massive machine, and it was spinning away, a material part of, of his arm got caught in this thing as it was spinning, and he got sucked into this machine. Luckily, he survived. He wasn't seriously injured. But that's almost the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us, that Jesus is now the center. 
and that no person, no program, no institution, no political party, no philosophy, no ideal, no country, no nothing can ever stand higher than Jesus. He says that he is the head of the church and we are his body. You know, you know, a body has, you know, it's got a foot and it's got fingers and a spleen and it's got shoulders and it's got all these different, it's got a butt, it's got all these different parts. He says, yes, you are this diverse, not a mono-ethnic, but a multi-ethnic diverse body. But guess what? Jesus is the head. What he says goes. What he models, we do. The pace that he sets, we follow. He is the one. And the fullness of the church, he says, is going to be the full expression of God on this earth. So he sets the pace. Now, what does that mean for how we think about multi-ethnic church for our city, for our country? Because here's the issue, friends. We say here, I believe in my heart. I'm just not knowing it here. I'm going to know it in the depth of my heart that Jesus is the head. He's above everything else. No one else is allowed to set the pace for the church and for the world. But so many people in history have tried to co-opt, to, to kidnap the image and the name of Jesus for their own gain, for their own plans, for their own means. And let me give you one example of that that I think has done so much damage in people's misconceptions about what faith and Christianity is all about. It's this idea that Jesus is white. And this is not a skin color issue. It's more than that. It's this idea that Christianity is this white, Western, imperialist religion. And that's where it comes from, and that's what it's for. And the reality is, guys, many people have done incredibly horrendous and evil and horrific things over the ages by saying that Jesus is our Jesus. He's my Jesus, and he's for my people and for my future and for our ends. You know, it's a case in point how many people think this is what Jesus looked like. There's a painting from 1940 called The Head of Christ by this American painter called Warner Selman. And it's been reproduced, get this, more than a billion times. That's billion with a B, by the way, a billion times. To the extent that the New York Times called this the best known American artwork of the 20th century. Generations of people had it imprinted into their minds that Jesus is this white guy. Not just white, he's lily white. He's like Scandinavian Icelandic white. Now let me tell you something. We don't actually know exactly what Jesus looked like. But we do know for a fact that he was not white. Guys, he was a first century Middle Eastern Galilean carpenter. <laughs> he wasn't white. So to the extent that Princeton biblical scholar James Charlesworth, he says Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth was, he, had, he likely had a much darker complexion than many of us would like to admit. He was a Middle Eastern man. But this idea of the white Jesus, of the Western world, this, this imperialist Jesus, it's taken root so much that this one pastor in his biography, he tells of working with refugees in East Africa and how this one Nigerian refugee would constantly come to him and bring him paintings that he had made of Jesus 
and Mother Mary. And guess what color they are? They are white. Even Jesus' mother, she is white. Why? Because that's what he was taught. So in his book, The Scramble for Africa, Thomas Pakenham says this, that in 1880, nearly none of the continent of Africa had been at all engaged by European nations. But just 30 years later, it had been completely carved up. That's where the scramble part comes from, by just five European nations. And he says this was their main goal. They came with the four C's to Africa. Commerce, conquest, civilization, and guess what number four is? Christianity. Can you believe that? That the horror that was committed in Africa was flown under the flag of our Jesus, who looks like us, who campaigns for us, who protects us whose future is for us. And that is such a tragedy because it misses everything about Christian history, about Jesus himself and about his church. So let me just give you a couple of things just to shift our mind as to who Jesus is and what he does. His own life and teaching was a scandal in the Jewish and the Roman world because he tore through all these boundaries of culture and ethnicity. So in Luke chapter 10, the hero that Jesus chooses for his his incredible parable about neighborly love is what? A Samaritan man, the most hated ethnic group by his Jewish peers. Or in John chapter 4, he can choose to go around Samaria on his journey, but he chooses to go straight into it Guys, the Jewish people saw the Samaritans as lower than dogs. They hated them. But Jesus has a divine appointment with an outcast Samaritan woman. She is about to encounter the living water life itself in Jesus. Or Matthew 28, when Jesus gives his marching orders to his disciples in the future church, he says to them, go and make what followers, uh, students, disciples, Of what? The people who look like you? The people that you want to spend time with? Of some nations? No, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Or how about in Acts chapter 2 verse 5, when the day of Pentecost is about to to, launch this, this Holy Spirit bomb and God is about to pour out his spirit on the people. It says just before that in chapter five, in, in chapter two, verse five, that people gathered from all nations were together in Jerusalem. And God strategically says, that is where I want to launch my church in the spirit. Christianity did not come from the West, as so many people think. That's nonsense. The, the, the followers of this brown-skinned carpenter from Galilee, they were first called Christians, little Christ, where in Antioch. Friends, that's modern-day Turkey. <laughs> it was in the West. In fact, many people believe that, you know, Africa received Christianity through these colonialists much later. But that's not the truth. Even in the Bible, we see in Acts chapter 8, we meet this very influential, this well-educated royal party Ethiopian. 
And through the ministry of Philip, one of the followers of Jesus, he becomes a Christian. And he embraces the faith. He says, I want to be baptized as soon as possible. And that, friends, listen to me, was hundreds of years before Christianity ever reached America or Britain. In fact, Christianity takes so hold of Ethiopia that it becomes only the second place in the world to have an officially Christian state at that point. We have to realize that a couple of years just after the life of Jesus, the gospel went out to Africa. It it started in places like Egypt, and just a, a few years later, it was in places like Tunisia and Sudan and other parts of Africa. It didn't arrive with a ship from a bunch of white Westerners. We have to realize that Africa, in fact, spawned some of the most famous church fathers in all of history, one of which probably is the most influential Christian of all time, St. Augustine of Hippo. He was a North African man. And likewise, until they were all but decimated by other religious movements, places like Iraq had some of the most um, prestigious and long unbroken Christian communities in history. And far from, you know, the Western world bringing Christianity to India, India can trace its Christian history all the way back to the first century, way before it ever got to America or Britain. And even today, friends, that's the reality. Peer research says that by the year 2060, more than 40% of self-professing Christians will be found in sub-Saharan Africa. And while China today is the epicenter of atheism, research uh, done by Purdue University says that Christianity is exploding so quickly at the moment in that country that by 2025, it might have the biggest Christian population in the world. And by 2050, it might become a predominantly Christian nation. Yes, so many evil and horrendous and horrific things have been done in the past under the flag of Jesus, claiming Jesus for yourself. But we have to put to death this poisonous idea that Christianity is a white, Western, imperialist religion. It's just not the truth. And it's in that backdrop then that we have to wrestle with the sad fact That Martin Luther King, the famous American activist in the civil rights movement, that he would lament and say, how can it be that the most segregated hour in Christian America is what? 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. How can it be that a city like Pretoria, like Tswane, still has the ability to house you in these little bubbles? That you can go all throughout your life, pretty much, preschool, primary school, high school, a lot of your university studies, your work, your play, and your church. And you can be still just in these enclaves of mono-ethnic living that we decide and we still live so segregated. So here's the question that I want to leave us with today that we will have to wrestle with. If Jesus is the head, he chooses, he sets the pace. It's not us co-opting him for our work. He says, no, this is my vision. This is my plan. This is my heart. This is the question. Is the Jesus that you serve a Jesus of your own creation? Or is he the head of all things and you are but the body? 
And is church a place where I hide away to be with people who are like me, talk like me, speak like me, think like me, come from places like me? It's like this apocalyptic bunker that I just hide away in to be with people who are like me. Or is the church a place where with the head of Christ, we have this beautifully blended family? And I come into a place that, yes, challenges me, but so enriches me to realize this is God's picture on earth. And he says, I want you to know, not just up here, but I want you to know that it is my inheritance, this. It's happening through my strength. And you can have such hope in it. You know, I just think to finish off of a friend we made in Dr. Bloemfontein, who, young black guy, brilliant guy, who stepped into our church. And after a couple of months, I'll never forget him sitting in our community group one evening, tears in his eyes, just saying that I've never in my life had a positive interaction with a white person. Never. But it was in the church with Jesus as the head that that started turning for him. Friends, this is what God calls us to. I don't have anything against white people. I don't know if you realize, but I'm white. But Jesus says, I'm calling together all ethnicities to my cross. And my church, as John says, when Jesus prays for his disciples, John 17, he says, may they all be one as you and I are one, Father, why? So that the world may know. It's when we are one that people come to know who Jesus is. So I'll leave you with this thought. Mark Damars again, he says this, for an increasingly diverse and cynical society, people will no longer find credible the message of God's love for all people when it's proclaimed from segregated churches. Jesus is calling together a beautifully blended church with him as the head. Let's pray. Jesus, I just pray today that you, through your spirit, would gently, but with such accuracy and force, bring conviction to our hearts. Will you enlighten the eyes of our heart? God, we want to see what you want to do in our lives, in this church, and in this city. God, we want to do this in your strength. We don't want to be a church that's comfortable. We want to embrace the discomfort for your glory and for the good of the people of Tswane. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen.